good to see you all here this morning. After today, we only have um, two more sessions in April, and we'll be finished. And uh, the next two times together are going to be mostly, um, well, completely, about um, interpretation, how to interpret the Bible, how to study the Bible, and um, I'm excited about that. That's something that we really want to uh, end the year solidly on, so we're going to spend two times on that. And it's very important that we've spent the whole year prior to that talking about really mostly are you men who are becoming the kind of men who shepherds your heart with God's word. Now, perhaps an argument could be made, well, shouldn't you teach interpretation first so that when we are coming to God's word, we're actually studying it rightly to bring it to our hearts. And yes, you could. Um, but I also think there's enough clarity with scripture that as you read it and take it in its normal sense, you're getting what is there in scripture. And it's very important to be a kind of man first who um, understands that I want to bring my life before this word. And look, ideally, if you had your choice, you'd want to do it all at once, wouldn't you? Here's how you interpret, and here's how you shepherd your heart, and here's how you bring it into your home, and and all of that. But um, we want to end the year solidly with interpretation. If any of you, um, and we'll talk about um, H3 more with you guys um, as we finish up the year, but as any of you, some of you, all of you go to H3 eventually, H3 is heavily loaded with how to interpret and um, study the Bible. Um, as you go through more theological kinds of things um, and subjects throughout the course of the year, every week, not twice a month, but every week in H3, um, it's heavily focused on interpretation and study um, for the sake of teaching or preaching, um, teaching in a Bible study, teaching in a class or whatever. It's learning to be able to um, deliver God's word. Um, right now, SMED has all of the guys in H3 beginning to, um, they've been assigned a passage that they've been working on all year, the guys um, on the side, and now they're beginning um, to start doing like a 20-minute teaching on it each time. Uh, so that's really exciting to see the guys do that. Um, so you're going to get an introduction to interpretation that will carry over into H3 if that's where you so go and desire to be and the elders desire you to be and all that good stuff. So let's um, let's pray and then let's. I want to review back through um, really the, the core disciplines, uh, the biblical disciplines that we're focusing on. So let's pray first. Can you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you again for a new day. We thank you for um, your faithfulness that will be on full display today to us. Um, Your faithfulness to us in your promises, in particular the gospel promises, and the promise of the new covenant. Thank you so much, God, that you are a God of integrity. Uh, You make promises and you keep them. Thank you for the the way that you, Father, and your Son, and the Spirit work together to uphold your plan to save sinners. 
thank you for um, all that you have done. And Lord, we rest, even at the, the, the start of this day, we rest in your great work as Savior and Lord. And we thank you for being that kind of God that you do not leave into our hands. Um, our promises are not the backbone of what we have in salvation. It is your promises that are. And we pray today, Lord, that you would strengthen us, that you would, in Christ and by your Spirit and with your precious word, work powerfully and build us up, that we might become um, godly men, and we might become godly husbands, that we might be godly leaders in this church as you uh, raise us up. And so, Father, this is a strategic moment as we gather together, and we pray that you would use it in a in a powerful way for your um, glory, so that Grace Bible Church might be a strong church because it has strong, godly, spiritual men, disciplined men. You know, and we don't want a discipline that is uh, man-centered, that's fleshly, that's just done by us because we are um, men who are go-getters. We want a discipline that flows from the gospel of grace because we are overwhelmed by what we have seen in you in Scripture, because from these new hearts that you have given us, you are drawing us into biblical discipline, spiritual discipline. And that's what we are hungry for and um, striving for. We pray that today might be used by you to accomplish more of that in us. In particular, as we look at... um, our church's biblical vision and gospel purpose. I pray that you bring clarity there and even make this uh, refreshing to me um, as we, just as elders, think about uh, what our vision and purpose is as a church. Thanks for these men and their great, um, the great sacrifice that it is to get out of bed early on a Saturday and be here. Um, so bless our time, Lord and uh, use it for your sake and for our good. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's talk about the <laughs> biblical disciplines that we... And by the way, just as a, a reminder, you are free to move around as much as you want. You are free to uh, get up and get more food. You are free to use the restroom whenever you want. Just get up, make yourself at home. Okay. Uh, but let's talk about discipline number one. In build, and again, this is on the back side of your notebook. If you have your notebooks, you want to look at it again, keep it in front of you. This is what we want to have ingrained in your mind and in your heart and in your thoughts all the time. Number one, that we need to be men who are concerned to shepherd our own hearts, right? We're, we're concerned about the first discipline being the heart. That we are, we are not men who play leapfrog over our hearts and run quickly on to other things. Ministry. Um, we need to be first and most men who are concerned that God would speak to our hearts with His Word. And that we would expose our hearts regularly to His Word. Not just theological concepts, not just uh, right biblical truth and thoughts. We want all of that. But even before that, we want to expose our hearts to God in the Word of God. Um, a great deal of problems uh, will come when we 
if we become men who come to the Word of God and, and we forget to meet with God in our hearts, um, in the Word of God. Uh, we need to meet with God. And, and that is a... You just don't want to play leapfrog over that. And as men, and as fallen men, as, as men who have flesh and indwelling sin, you will constantly be drawn to that. It'll be a center of gravity that you'll just fall to when you're not intentional by the Spirit of God in you, in the fullness of the Spirit of God. You will constantly fall to being a man who will easily move on to other things, interesting things, important things, and you'll leave your heart behind and out. And the kind of man who carries out ministry, the kind of man who teaches important theological things in the church to build the church up, to equip the church, the kind of man that does that is everything. Um, If you're a man who is concerned about your heart and in the fullness of what God has revealed of himself to you from his word in your heart, and it's just overflowing in your ministry, that's one kind of man and one kind of ministry and one kind of leadership in the church. And the other kind of man who does it, who's neglecting his heart, who's neglecting his relationship with the Lord, and who's neglecting his home, and all the other things, and is teaching the same stuff, that's quite another type of thing happening. And we want to avoid that. We want, by God's grace, if we can, become men who are not playing leapfrog over our hearts to other things. As you are doing that, as you are focusing on your heart, as you are feeding your heart, primarily with the gospel, from the word of God, you then move on and simultaneously look at discipline number two, the home. You look at the place where God has placed you to live. Um, and if you are married and you have a relationship there and or kids, you never play leapfrog over the home. You focus much of your time and much of your attention on taking care of your wife, loving her as Christ loved the church. Um sheltering her, living with her in an understanding way, as First Peter spells out. You are looking to shepherd her, bringing the word of God to her uh, in the ways that um, work well for the way you two are both wired in your marriage. And you're guarding her so that she can have time meeting with God in her heart through the word of God. Um, you're, you're focusing on those things. Your children, you're managing your children, you're sh- uh, shepherding your children. Um, this is a part of biblical leadership, right? Um, deacons and elders are to be men who manage their households well. And the thought is, well, if he plays leapfrog over his house and things are not in order there, but he's leading the church, that doesn't make sense. <coughs> so the point is, take care of your heart. If you're single and you don't have... Um, a family yet don't think why well, that doesn't apply to me begin working now on where you're at care for the people that you live with if it's parents care for them you're an age now where don't sit there and think you know I'm still the punk kid who has to be the sponge that soaks everything off of mom and dad turn around and start leading in ways that's honoring to your dad if you're still there that was respectful to your mom but give back in a spiritual way to those who are there care for them care for your parents hearts if you have roommates care for them shepherd them with the word of God don't overlook that don't fool yourself into thinking that you know what when I get, when I get married someday and I finally get a wife I'll I'll be a, I'll be a good shepherd then if you're not a good shepherd now with the people you live with what makes you think you're going to be a good shepherd when you get a wife 
practice now. Um, God's given you a place to live, um, people to live with. Care for them with the Word of God. As you're doing that, and God is blessing, and as you are um, being challenged and sanctified through that whole process in the home, then we talk about the ministry. Now we talk about ministry to people in the church. Um, and again, this is not a sequential thing, rigidly speaking, whereas you have to make sure you've completely shepherded your heart and graduated from that and received the diploma. Then you move on to shepherding your home. Completely do that, get your diploma, graduate from it, and move on to now the ministry. It's not that way. These are all overlapping, and they, they continue. But there is a sequence of importance as well. And then you step into people's lives in the church, and you begin to care for people. And the guy who has the most effective ministry in the church, the leader who has the most effective ministry in the church, is the one indeed who does not neglect his heart and is making an impact in his home, and it's seen. And the ministry you have will be very effective with the gospel in the church. Um, fourth discipline that we have then is, discipline four is um, the, the biblical qualifications, or the qualifications for ministry. And we've primarily set before you um, the deacon qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. Um, and if you look at the qualifications for deacon and for elder, um, again, they primarily, those, those character qualifications line up in one of those first three disciplines that we talked about. What kind of a man is he just before God? What, what kind of a man is he in his heart before God? What's his character like just as a man of God? <laughs> Secondly, what's he like with the people in his home? Does he manage his own household well? Is he a one-woman man? Um, what's his marriage like? And then with people outside of that, what's he like? What's he like with people? Is he, is he contentious? Is he a fighter? Is he able to refute the sound doctrine? Is he able to hold firm to the, 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 the mystery of the gospel um, for the deacon qualifications, etc.? And so we want to place those before you. And we gave you a, a prayer guide. I hope you guys will kind of use that to be purposefully praying about the, the qualifications for deacon um, in, in, in 1 Timothy 3, and then also even just uh, the elder qualifications. Um, we want to set before all of them in the church those qualifications for elders so that you'll strive <coughs> towards them. Um, and Lord willing, you'll be qualified to, to be that kind of a, a leader in the church, that the church needs always more elders. You can never have too many shepherds in a church. Um, and if you think you've got too many, then go plant a church. Make another body of Christ by God's grace. Um, and then discipline five is kind of a catch-all subject area of the biblical, theological, practical. It just allows us here in Build to address any of biblical issues that may come up, biblical questions you have, um, theological concerns or questions you may have, um, practical ministry issues or questions that we may have. And we don't spend as much time focusing on that. Actually, H3 ends up spending a lot of time focusing on theology, theological issues, biblical um, matters, and things like that more so. Uh, and then the last discipline is our church's vision and purpose statement, which we actually are going to spend all of our time on today. Um, we want the leaders in this church who are being built up to um, make sure that they understand what the biblical vision and the purpose is of this church so that we might, um, so they can carry forward the church according to this path that we're trying to mark out as a vision and a purpose. Um, so we're going to expose you to that this morning. Um, so again, you're, you're, we're just wanting to encourage you for a whole year in build to become this kind of a man, concerned about these kinds of things. Um, 
real men do not play leapfrog. Okay? You don't play leapfrog over your heart. You don't play leapfrog over your home. You don't play leapfrog over the gospel. You play uh, by God's rules and you play it his way. And you shepherd your heart with the word of God. You shepherd your home and you care for people in the body. Okay? With the gospel. All right. Any questions or comments on that or... No. All right, I have a quote to, uh, for you that will tie into something of what we're talking about today. I came across this um, in another book, and I, I, I can't remember exactly where, but I do know that it's from Cal Thomas, who uh, writes lots of articles. Um, he's a Christian, solid guy. And he says this, he said this 15 years ago, and I think... The problem is still true today. The problem in our culture isn't the abortionists. It isn't the pornographers or drug dealers or criminals. That's a pretty radical thing to say. That's nothing compared to what he's going to say next. It is, rather, the undisciplined, undiscipled, disobedient, and biblically ignorant church of Jesus Christ. In America, that's the problem. Um, In other words, he's identifying where the solution is to all of our problems in society. The solution to everything is that the church needs to be stronger in America. That's not to say that there doesn't need to be other partial, uh, important component solutions out there, outside. But what if you fix all of those things and the church is nothing? you still got a huge problem. And so the point is, is we want to have a strong church. And if that's the case, so then the church needs to understand what it is and what it's supposed to be and do. And that's part of why we have a vision and a purpose statement at Grace Bible Church. So let's take a look at that. Um, take your hand out, and we'll start working our way through this today. And we have two basic uh, parts to our, our statement as to what we are as a church and what we want to be about. We have a biblical vision, and we have a gospel purpose. And so I want to, in, in the biblical vision, if you if you can imagine it in your mind, there's There's kind of a triad for each of them, right? Our biblical vision is the glory of God, the cross of Jesus Christ, and the life transformation of the Holy Spirit. Okay? You think about that. And then there's a gospel purpose. And that's drawing in, building up, and sending out. You need to be able to, we want you to be able to just think of, be able to spit out clearly, because you understand it, hopefully, and because you see it in Scripture, the glory of God, the cross of Jesus, a changed life by the Holy Spirit. That needs to be something that is constantly on your mind. And you need to be thinking of drawing in, building up, and sending out. And you need to understand from those three, uh, those two triads the categories that they're both in, the two categories. One is a biblical vision, and the other is a gospel purpose. And we're trying to today help you understand that a little bit more. So let's talk about a biblical vision of God first, that, that first triad. What do we mean first just by a biblical vision of God? Let me, let me tell you about what we do not mean. Um, we do not mean a subjective, unverifiable vision. Okay, We're not talking about any dreams or anything like that that you cannot verify. Um, that's not the sense of vision we're, we're talking about. We're also not talking about biblical visions like the, one that, the ones that Daniel had. None of the elders or anybody here have had any of those. Um, Daniel's visions are not subjective. They are objective. And they are verifiable because they have been inspired by God and inscripturated. 
Um, any visions you or I might have will not fall into that same category. So we're not talking about those kinds of visions. So what on earth are we talking about when we say biblical vision? Two senses in this. One, we want to see as the Bible sees. Okay, that's what we mean by vision. We want to see as the Bible sees. We want to see what the Bible sees. Okay? We want to see what the Bible sees. We want a biblical lens. That's what we mean. We want a biblical vision. And we want all of the Bible to be our sight. We want all of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, to be our guide. We want all of the Bible to be our vision. We do not want one testament to the diminishment of the other. We want That's why it's called biblical vision. That's why our purpose is called gospel purpose. Okay, We'll talk about that more in a minute, but biblical vision. So that's the first sense. We want to see as the Bible sees. The, the second thing we mean in regards to a biblical vision is we want the Bible to be the controlling line of authority in everything we do, over everything. Now, I want to venture off onto maybe a, not a rabbit trail, but I just want to get off the path for a minute and just talk about what we mean by this and what we don't mean by this. And, and it's a there's a there's a sense in which we don't want to drive a wedge between two very important things. But I, I, for a minute, I want to put a little space between two very important things. We want the Bible to be our controlling line of authority in everything we do. We do not want theology to be our controlling line of authority. Okay? Now... We're just going to move slowly and take deep breaths. I'm, I, I'm, I'm not saying anything heretical here. Let me explain to you what I mean. Theology is derived from what you see in the Bible. You ask questions, and there's two types of, of theology. There's biblical theology, and there's systematic theology. Systematic theology, I'm not expecting you to take this down. But, but just listen carefully. <laughs> Systematic theology is primarily concerned with asking atemporal questions, meaning questions that are not um, locked or bound into time. Questions like, what is God like? Okay. What is sin? That's systematic theology. Biblical theology asks temporal questions. Questions that are rooted into time, specifically redemptive historical time. Let me give an example. What a biblical theology question is: What does the Pentateuch say about who God is? See how that's tied into time, a time and a place and a people and a specific situation and era of redemptive history. What does Isaiah contribute to our understanding of sin? Do you understand? Biblical theology. Biblical theology helps you to form your systematic theology. You never want your systematic theology to just be kind of somehow originate apart from a biblical theology. 
And you never want to just stop with biblical theology. You need to move on to systematic theology. You want both of those things. But what is prior to both of those things is what we call exegesis of texts. You try to understand texts in their plainness, in their natural language of what has been said. You're, and that is where the controlling authority always is. It moves through and it helps you to form a biblical theology. I understand better what God is revealing of himself in the Pentateuch, in the historical section of the Old Testament, in the wisdom and, and poetic literature, in the prophetic writings of the Old Testament, and then into the Gospels, and then etc. You're, you're tracing through by looking at text, and you're forming a biblical theology, and it's helping you, when you're all said and done, form answers to atemporal questions like, well, let me tell you who God is, what he is like. Now, once you've done that, and you come, and as you do that, when you come to the text, are you shaped by your theology? Oh, absolutely, you better be. But, what if you were wrong in what you concluded theologically? You come back to the text and you resubmit over and over and over and over your theological conclusions to the text. And your, the, the texts have the control and the authority to make you change your theology if you need to. Your theology cannot become the controlling line of authority so that it changes the way you interpret texts. <clears throat> Did you get that? There is a huge difference between the two. Yes, you are shaped by the theological conclusions that you draw from the text. You bring all of those to the text every single time. There is not one of us who has ever come to the Bible as a blank slate. Oh, I don't have any biases. I just let the text say what the text says. Yes, we all try to do that, but we're all biased. Okay, We just need to be honest about that. We are. But the point is, is that we try to the best that we can by the help of the Spirit to resubmit over and over and over our theological conclusions to the text. There's no fear in doing that because you only want your theology to be shaped by the text and you want, you, you need to come with the text with certain understandings of who God is and what he is like so that you're not getting way off and as you look at texts. There's a, there's a wonderful relationship between your theology and your biblical exegesis. But at the end of the day, which is the controlling line and authority? And at the beginning of the day, which is the controlling line and authority? And throughout the day, which is your biblical authority and controlling line? It is the text. It is the Bible. Okay? So in that sense, we mean a biblical vision. Uh, we want to have a theological concept and idea as well. But we're more concerned to have scripture as our biblical vision. Now, if I sent you into a tailspin, and, and you want to talk about that later, let's talk about it later. <laughs> okay? Um, I hope I didn't. But it's, it's a very important um, discussion to have at some point in your mind so that you understand the relationship. Um, so you don't want to drive a wedge too far apart. There's a, there's a, there's a helpfulness in separating texts and biblical theology and systematic theology, but only so that you understand them in their components and then kind of put them back together. Okay? You all right? Yeah. Okay. We have a biblical vision. We're striving for that. 
Okay? And we have a biblical vision of, what does it say? God. Okay, this is back to discipline one. We want to see God as the scriptures see God. We don't just want to see theological truths and concepts without seeing God. Scripture, first and most, is revelation. It reveals a person. It reveals a threefold personhood called God. And we want to see God as the Bible sees him. We want to see the three persons in one revealed by Scripture. So how do we summarize a biblical vision of God? It's our attempt to summarize what Scripture reveals about God. It's our attempt to summarize what scriptures what the scriptures reveal about God. That's what we mean by a biblical vision of God. Okay? That is why the three triads under a biblical vision of God the three triads. That's going to be done. Um, the triad under it is Trinitarian. The glory of God. And by that we basically ultimately mean the Father. The cross of Christ, Jesus, and the transformation of life by the Holy Spirit. That's why we've summarized that biblical vision in terms of the persons of the Godhead. Okay, does that make sense? If it reveals a person, it makes sense. One way would be to summarize the message of the Bible, the, what the Bible sees in terms of the persons it reveals. And so what this is an attempt to do is to say, look, if we could somehow, this is overly, terribly simplistic. And obviously by simplifying something very big and deep and long and wide, you, you leave important stuff out and you miss important stuff. But what we're trying to do is just simply state what we believe the message and the side of the Bible to be. It's about the glory of God as he reveals in his son's death on the cross and the transformation of life that results as a as a, the salvation that flows from that. It's the glory of God in the cross of Jesus Christ in the transformation of life it brings. That says a, doesn't say anything about origins. That doesn't say anything about ultimately the end. So I'm, we understand we're missing a lot of important things. But we're trying to state it in terms of what the, the persons do, of the, the persons of the Godhead do and who they are. And so we want to start with the glory of God. Okay? The glory of God. And again, we're, we're primarily talking about the Father, but we're not trying to say that the Son doesn't have any glory himself. He does. The Spirit has glory. But we're primarily talking about the Father here. And what, what is glory? In fact, here's what I would encourage you to do. You know how we are encouraging you to read through the Bible in a year, which you guys, I'm sure, are, you know, you're right up on schedule and doing just fine. Uh, no, you're always striving to get back on schedule, okay? And, and keep striving to get back on schedule. But... Um, read, as you read through the Bible, in your margins or wherever you can or in your journal or whatever, look for the word glory. Look for the word glory. Look for the word glorify. And, and just start making notes of every time you see it. And you'll notice sometimes the word glory is not tied to God at all, but it's tied to man. Note that too. Because it will help you understand the, the way that it's used across the line of, of Scripture. Um, but trace just that idea and write it in your margin, glory. Or write it in your journal, um, glory. And you'll, 
find that your understanding of glory will, will be deep and richly by that. Um, so what is glory? It is God's weightiness, his worth, his impressiveness, expressed through brilliant radiance. I'm going to say that again because all of that is important. It is his weightiness. It is his worth. It is his impressiveness that is expressed through brilliant radiance, light. You'll notice that um, from the Old Testament to the New, whenever God's glory is talked about, there's mostly whenever it's talked about, there's this sense of flash of light, blinding brilliance, fire, something like that. Okay. Um, now, there's a sense in which God's glory is that which he uses to communicate himself. Glory is, in a sense, God's language of communicating himself to us. We know that no man has ever seen God and lived. But what God does do is he communicates himself through glory. And man has seen that and lived. Now, oftentimes he thought he was going to die, right? But God communicates himself through and with his glory, his weightiness, his impressiveness and it's bound up in light and brilliance um, all of that he communicates himself through that now the classic Old Testament passage on this is Exodus 33 if you turn there with me let's let's take a look at that because there's a, a marvelous passage this is Moses oh, it's, a, it's a tough time for Moses and Israel because in chapter 32 while Moses was up on the mountain, what did Israel do? Golden calf. And it was it was purely an accident because you know what Aaron did. I mean, he just he just took their gold, he put it in the fire, and out came this calf. I mean, it was it was who knows how that happened. It's purely an accident. And now God is basically saying, um, look at the end of chapter thirty-two. Verse 34. But now go. Now even back up. Verse 33. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Wow. But now go. Lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. You know what God's saying? I'm done going with you. I'm done. I'll send, I'll send my angel with you, but I'm not going. Because if I go with you, I'm just going to kill you all day long. That's what God's saying. Chapter 33. Moses is up on the mountain. Verse 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Boy, just stay there for a little bit on your own. When Moses turned again into the camp his assistant Joshua the son of Nun a young man would not depart from the tent I love that about Joshua 
Here was Moses meeting in this tent, and there was glory everywhere. Moses would come out, and his face would be glowing. And when he was done and the meeting was over, Joshua would, would like, just go there just to be there. God was just meeting with Moses. I mean, he just stayed in the tent. Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, You say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. But you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. See, that's it. This line of, it's important to know God. It's important to know the God of the Word, not just the stuff of God in the Word. Consider, too, that this nation is actually your people. He's saying, God, the burden's on you. This is your people. Verse 14. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. So God's saying, I'll, I'll be with you. And then Moses said, if your presence will not go with me, don't even bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not you going with us, you are going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? The only thing that makes us any different than any other nation, God, is you. So let's not even go another step here, God, unless you go with us. This is huge. Verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing I have spoken... Uh, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, then please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my glory pass before you. Now he said, no, I will make all my goodness. Now why that? Because God's communication of himself and all of his weightiness and all the brilliant splendor that he is, it is good for me. It is good for us. I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. So that's what I'm going to show you, my glory and my goodness. Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. That's a question I want to ask. when I. How, what was the place by you? God, when you were there. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. And then I will take away my hand, and you shall see the the, the, the trail, the in a sense, the residue, or, or whatever that's on the backside, because it is so brilliant, and that my face shall not be seen. Okay, there's your Old Testament classic uh, passage on the glory of God. Let's let's look at the New Testament. Go to John chapter one, and we can look at many others. John one verse fourteen. You know, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse fourteen. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, dwelt means tabernacle, tented among us. This is John's deliberate attempt to pick up Mount Sinai-like language and say um, what you what God did back then is nothing compared to what He did when the Word became flesh. That was a, a picture of something far greater to come. 
And we have seen his, what? Glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's a very interesting prepositional phrase, probably not best translated with full of grace and truth, but replacing grace and truth. Meaning that there was a grace that came in the Old Testament, in the glory of God, in the tabernacle. But there has come now another grace that replaces that grace and a truth that replaces that truth, that faithfulness of God back then. Uh, Don Carson has a great commentary on this. Uh, very important. But see, you see here, now glorious, still the theme, bound up in Jesus and the Father. Go to chapter 12, verse 37 of John. John 12, verse 37. This is awesome. Remember Isaiah in his vision, chapter 6? Remember that? Now he doesn't say glory, glory, glory. He said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? Now watch this, verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed in what, we heard, what he heard from us, and to whom has the armor of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. Who did you see in Isaiah 6, sitting on a throne, lofty? He saw the second member of the Godhead. Go to Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Just showing that there's glory language in the New Testament as well. Luke 9, verse 28. Mount of Transfiguration. Luke is very careful to pick up on the same idea. And in this sense, we're seeing lots of continuity, aren't we, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Verse 28. Now about eight days after these things these sayings, he took with him Peter, John, and James, and they went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became what? Dazzling white. The other gospel writers say that his face was beaming light. Now, light, dazzling white, what should in your mind you begin to think of immediately? Glory. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure literally his exodus one man Moses had an amazing exodus and he's talking to Jesus about another exodus that's going to take place in Jerusalem his death verse 31 now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep but when they became fully awake they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him master it's good that we've been here let me make three tents one for you, Moses, one for Elijah. Verse 34, And as he was saying these things, a cloud came. God revealed his glory in the temple or in the tabernacle in the Old Testament of the wilderness in two ways. By day, what? A cloud. By night, fire. So you've got the cloud now here coming and overshadowing them as they and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. Boy, what a, this is an exaltation of Jesus Christ above um, 
Moses and Elijah. This is saying, here's the Old Testament, the first prophet, the last prophet, so to speak, the law and the prophets, so to speak, and they give way to Jesus who has come. Um, so glory is very important. In Matthew uh, 16, and in 24, and in 25, and in Revelation 21, uh, let me just talk about the Matthew ones for a second. Jesus says there's a glory that's going to come. The Son of Man will come in glory. Now let's finish with Revelation 21. Okay, You can look those up on your own. Revelation 21, verse 22. And you're going to see this line of, of connection, of connectivity, of continuity all through your Bible now. Okay? We were in Exodus. There was a tent. And there was a God of glory in that tent. Eventually became a temple under Solomon. Jesus comes and he tented among us. And then he was up on the mountain. You see his glory. Look at Revelation 21, verse 22. New, new, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. I saw no temple in the city. For his temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For what? The glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. It'll make people at that point, who are a part of the, the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, say, you know what? Whatever is weighty or impressive or brilliant about all of us and the stuff that we have in this new place, we need to bring it to the greater impressiveness and weightiness of God. Let's bring it to the place of glory, the temple. Nothing unclean can ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Glory. The glory of God in Scripture from the front to the end. Practically speaking, what does this mean for us, guys? It means position yourself often, daily, before the Bible to drink in the glory of God. Position yourself often, daily, before the Bible to drink this in. It's God's communication of himself, his glory. Soak it in. We talk a lot about it's important for us to glorify God. Right? And it is. What would happen if you taught if you were, were seeking to glorify God, which is exalt him and praise him and, and recognize him for the magnificent, impressive, weighty God that he is? What would happen if you attempted to do that but weren't drinking in, basking before his glory? What impact does that make on your ability to glorify God, if you are? It's huge. It's everything. One is like a car trying to drive without any gas in its tank. And the other is a car with a full tank overflowing, spilling out everywhere, able to move. Okay, so drink that in. In fact, the men, if you look through Scripture, the men most equipped and most effective for God throughout redemptive history were those like Moses who hungered to see the glory of God. Be that kind of man, guys. Let's talk about the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ. 
Now, the glory of God, interestingly in Scripture, is tied inseparably to substitutionary sacrifice. His weightiness, his impressiveness, his brilliant radiance is tied inseparably to substitutionary sacrifice. In the Old Testament, the great example of this is the tent or the temple. This is where God's glory came and manifested itself. And that's the very place where you found all kinds of blood of a substitute. Isn't that interesting? God put his glory and God put blood, substitutionary sacrifice, in the same place. Well, what a revelational climax it is in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, in his death on the cross. That's Christ's death related to God's glory. You cannot talk about the glory of God without getting to the cross in Scripture. You cannot talk about the cross of Jesus Christ without talking about how just this is what an impressive, weighty, amazing God. Now, the cross of Christ, what, what are we not saying? We're not saying two things. I want to make sure this, because this comes up. And these are legitimate concerns to make sure that we're clear in what we're talking about. Number one, we're not talking about a Christless cross. When we say the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross, we're not talking about an emblem in the sense of maybe like a Roman Catholic idea would. Okay, we're not talking about a cross without a Christ, without a Jesus. It's not a Jesusless cross, it's not a Christless cross that we're talking about. And secondly, we're not trying to diminish the empty tomb. When we talk about the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross. The empty tomb, the resurrection, is important. Okay, the cross makes no sense with the without the right one on it, dying. Right? Lots of men died on the cross, on Roman crosses. It was only one man's Roman cross that makes all of the difference. He's the Lamb of God. Okay? The empty tomb makes no sense, however, without the right one dying on the cross. Okay? There's only one empty tomb. And it's the one that belonged to the man who died on that unique cross who was a unique man. Okay? So... Uh, we're not talking about, we're not trying to de-emphasize or diminish the empty tomb. Okay? But the cross is, in many sense, even by Paul and others, even though they will mention the resurrection, the cross is the driving force that pushes and, and then also connects with the resurrection. Now, the Old Testament type and the Old Testament of um, substitutionary sacrifice, a great example is, you could see the whole Levitical system, but the Day of Atonement in particular in Leviticus 16 Let's look at the New Testament teaching on it in Hebrews 9. You can find this all over the place as well, but let's, let's focus on it in Hebrews 9, verse 22. And the writer will help us to connect things from the Old Testament to the New on this. New Testament teaching, Hebrews 9, 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Okay, substitutionary sacrifice, cleansing nature, forgiveness. Uh, Verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Verse 24, for Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, 
which are the copies of the true things. This is all reference to the Old Testament Levitical system. But he has entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not of his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Here's your key description. Penal substitutionary atonement. Guys, this is where you need to know these kinds of things. Penal substitutionary atonement. Penal, what does it sound like? Penalty. There's a penalty that must be paid. There's a, there is a law that is broken. There is a, a violation that has taken place and justice demands that there be a penalty. A penalty is, is paid. Substitutionary. That penalty can only be paid in God's economy by a substitute. A substitute whose, whose blood is shed. Atonement. At one meant. The point is, in the penalty being paid by the substitute, is God's intent is to make the offender at one with himself. The way that he does that is through, atonement has two, at least two critical things tied to it. Here's your fancy um, theological words. Propitiation, which is satisfaction. God is satisfied when he sees that blood shed to pay the penalty. His wrath is satisfied. Not a drop of wrath left. Okay? The other important word is expiation. Sin is carried away. Guilt is carried away. Okay? Those two are are the key ideas. um, And you could talk about other important concepts, but those two are, are at the heart. Penalty is paid by a substitute in order to make us one with God, and we are made at one with God by God's wrath being satisfied and our sin being carried away, forgiven. Penal substitutionary <coughs> atonement. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. That is what that you, that 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 very common Roman cross 2,000 years ago that had a one-of-a-kind man on it. That's what it accomplished. Okay? Practically speaking, what does this mean? I hope that you would be able to say with Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Here's What, what does this mean practically speaking for us? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. What does Paul say in those important verses? What difference does this make? And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now why didn't He say Jesus Christ and Him resurrected? It's not that it's not important. It's very important, the resurrection. But this cross is where penal substitutionary sacrifice took place. And it's important to get that right before you start talking about an empty tomb. I decided 
to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Guys, there's nothing else for you to need to know in ministry than this. It's not to say there's not important other things. Yes, there are. But this is the backbone. This is the main thing. This is the thrust. It's the gospel. It is the cross of Jesus Christ. In the sense when we talk about penal substitutionary sacrifice, there's nothing else. This is it for us. Uh, Galatians chapter 6. Turn there. Verse 14. And 15. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what did that do for you, Paul, that cross? Well, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I crucified to the world. There's a death that has taken place by this cross in my life. A separation. Death separates. I've been separated from the world. The world's been separated from me. Uh, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but what counts is a new creation, being made new. Okay? The cross is a part of that. And that leads us wonderfully, therefore, into the transformation of life by the Spirit. A new life, a new creation. The role of the Holy Spirit. What is the role of the Holy Spirit? If you were to ask Christians today, what's the what is the Holy Spirit all about? What kind of answers do you think you would hear if you just asked Christians in general? What would they say? And, and not that these are wrong answers. These are, these are good answers. But what comes to people's mind usually first and most when they talk about the Holy Spirit? What do you hear? Yes. Gifts. The gifts of the Spirit. What else? Okay, you said the gifts. That's great. But what else? The teachers. Okay, good. That's very important. What else? Leads us into all truth, tied with that idea of teaches us. Feeling or experience. It's important to have experience. Empowerment. Empowerment, fullness of the Spirit for life. And these are all true. These are all wonderful. And it is a tremendous also neglect. It shows where the church has arrived these days in that the first thing out of our mouths about the Holy Spirit is not his work in applying the cross of Jesus Christ to those that God is saving. The role of the Holy Spirit is to apply the work of the cross to the life of the one God is saving. That's his primary first role in coming. And when that takes place, when he does that, a massive salvation takes place. It is big, this salvation that takes place. It is not simply fire insurance. Not simply. It is a salvation that, yes, saves you from hell, separates you from that penalty, wonderfully so, but it also has ongoing effects. It's a huge Penal substitutionary atonement applied by the Holy Spirit to the life does something massively big. Let's talk about regeneration. We need to understand regeneration. Okay? If you had to say, what does it mean to be regenerated? What's another phrase you could use to understand that? Born again. To be born again. To be born from above. It's the birthing, it's birthing the, per- the person into a new life. It's regeneration is birthing the person into a new life before God. Okay? And that is rooted in a moment. There is a moment in time in which being born again takes place. <coughs> in which the new birth begins. 
or has taken place. Okay, it's rooted in a moment. Now, the new birth inevitably, inevitably, results in a new lifestyle. Okay, it's being rebirthed into a new life before God, but it ushers into a new lifestyle. You cannot be birthed by the Spirit from above into a new life with God without also having a new lifestyle flow from it. Now, it's important. Regeneration is uh, has has, an, has an, the element, the primary element of in time. There was a, a, at a specific moment a rebirth take pl- took place. If you hear people talk about regeneration as if it's this long process, that is not biblical regeneration. That is a if, I'm, if, I, if I understand correctly, that's the teaching of the Catholic Church, isn't it? Does anybody know? Okay, that it's a process. Regeneration has as its main part in time a new life being birthed into a new life with God. However, what does take place over time is what? The sanctification, the new life that results from that. Now, there was Old Testament anticipation of this, primarily in the New Covenant. Was, was it not? Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Ezekiel 36. In fact, let's go to Ezekiel 36. I want you to see that. Complementary New Covenant passage <coughs> to Jeremiah 31. Ezekiel 36, verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations... And gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a soft one. And I will put my spirit within you cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules and you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God etc etc now let's go to John chapter 3 Verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. A part of the Sanhedrin. This man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus basically um, derails his train of thought and says, um, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus asks questions about this. There's all kinds of debate about what's behind this question. Does he actually understand what Jesus is talking about or is 
truly genuinely confused, like I have to get back into my mom's womb. I'm an old man. I'm probably not confused about that. But Jesus says, verse 6, uh, verse 5, truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I, I think that's a reference back to what Nicodemus should have known in Ezekiel 36. Speaking of the water, the cleansing nature of what God's going to do, and the Spirit, it's the new birth that's coming, it's the new covenant that's coming. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is life. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from, where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is Jesus announcing that the Spirit of God is uh, doing a, a, a regenerating work. Uh, you have a, this, uh, something similar in Titus 3. Um, you should look that up on your own. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Um, Romans 8. Let's take a look at that one. Verse 10. Romans 8, 10, and uh, down through verse 13. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So we're talking about how the Spirit has an ongoing ministry of, of bringing about that death to the old self and the life come. Even There's a once and for allness about it, and there's the practical living out what has become true in you. Galatians 3 speaks similarly. If you have begun by the Spirit, why would you not want to continue by the Spirit? You abandon the gospel. Paul says. First Peter chapter 1, verse 2 talks about, um, in fact, I don't want to get it wrong. Let me just read it to you. Uh, very important. A great Trinitarian verse. How Peter starts off his gospel. To those who are elect exiles in the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. Substitutionary atonement. Okay? The Spirit is a part of this transformed life. Uh, practically speaking, <clears throat> I, I just want to encourage you guys. What, what does this mean? One of the things you should do, you need to bring the Holy Spirit to this, His work of, of transforming life back to the center of your, your thoughts. Is we, especially the persuasion we are as evangelicals, it is far too easy for us to neglect the Holy Spirit. We are very God the Father centered, very Jesus centered, and because we see an approach to the Holy Spirit that we're very uncomfortable with, we constantly correct that and react against it and, and push that away. And in so doing, if we're not careful, we will at the same time not bring the right thing and the right teaching about the Holy Spirit and bring the Spirit near. The Spirit regenerates. The Spirit sanctifies. The Spirit is therefore daily living. Okay? Um, 
and we need to bring the Holy Spirit back central. So I encourage you, as you read your Bibles, look for the Holy Spirit and watch what He is, watch what He does, and try to bring a, a more spirit-centeredness, if you will, to your Christian life, understanding correctly. All right. Now, that's the first part. We'll take a break. But before we do that, do you have any questions or comments that you want to make? Yes, Zach. Uh, Scott, do there happen to be any passages about the the moment, like like definitive moment nature of the regeneration of regeneration? Um, what was my verse is that? As I as I'm thinking about it in John three in uh, the idea in Titus three. In fact, let's go to Titus three because I think you'll see what um, what Paul does and, and, and the way that the writers of the New Testament deal with verse three it talks about what we once were. We we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient led it astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. (laughs) But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. And and the emphasis here is on a a once and for all type of saving initially here, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, watch what happens here then. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. There's a sense in which I think when regeneration is often taught in the New Testament, it's taught in its sense of what God has done in in time, in a place, and then verses later, before that or after that, there's clarification of, and this ushers on into. I think there's this separation that is inherently there in terms of thinking of a verse that says specifically regeneration is right now. I don't know if it's something clear unless I'm missing. Anybody have something in their minds to think of? Romans 5. You're talking about the declaring of God justification and then working on through chapter 6 and the strongest Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to give some more thought to that in terms of, of, of what, uh, of how I might be able to show that more clearly. Thanks for asking that. Um, the, the challenge is, with all this, is that people who want to take regeneration and make it into a process are trying to acknowledge that there's a role of the Holy Spirit in an ongoing way in life. But they're doing it the wrong way. They're doing it by stretching regeneration along. Instead of sanctification. Instead of saying, no, it's a a work that God does. And then there's ongoing results that derive from that, that flow from that. And in Titus here, one of those would be good works, right? Manifestation of the transformation would be... Correct. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then regeneration as opposed to justification. Yeah, they're not the same thing. There's simultaneousness between them, but regeneration is not called justification. But justification is not called regeneration, but there is definitely a connection between the two. 
and important to keep separate, but they are very, I don't know how you separate these things out in, in time and space. So, what is legal, that. right? Justification is legal? Hang on one second. I have a def- definition Please. for the distinction between the two. One, happen- no, no. one happens to you, the other is said about you. And which one would be which? Okay. What happens to you, obviously, is the regeneration. <coughs> what is said about you is the declaration, which is justification. It's a declaration before the court that you are now not guilty. And that's very important that justification is a is still has its forensic declaration <coughs> aspect. We don't want to drop that. Now, what was the other question? Oh, I was just going to say one's, one's legal. Justification, that's a legal term. We're in the court of law. This dude's declared not guilty. Correct. Okay. Great questions. Ben? One of the comments I also had is, weird, is understanding regeneration not so much as if you have one form of life, now you just have a different form of life. And that in the way the Bible described it, you had you were dead, you had no life, and now God has given you life. And you were in Ezekiel and you're looking at the new, kind of the new covenant and what God does with the spirit in you. You know, one chapter later is talking about the nation of Israel and the you know the vision the vision of the valley of dry bones and Great. you've got bones and he comes in and he says and he's also he's talking about the future restoration spiritual restoration of Israel and but he says, I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you, that you may come alive. And that's regeneration. You have absolute death, and now it's life. And so, can you gradually become life? You're either dead or you're alive. So, it's making that a gradual process is kind of a difficult argument. Ezekiel 37. Also, that made me think. Um, Although the Spirit is not ex- explicitly mentioned, <clears throat> Ephesians 2, obviously, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. It's really bad. Passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, the mind, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in his mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, he made us <clears throat> alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. There's that life from above by God. In particular, the Holy Spirit. Tom, I, hopefully this is helpful. I, you know, I, I'll tell you the reason why I'm going to say this, and then I'll get to my point. The reason I'm going to say it is I have seen, uh, maybe in my own heart at times, where I have been very faithful to be in the Word of God. I have been very faithful to recognize the cross of Christ. Uh, and I, I've seen professing Christians who will do those first two and can check the box and say, yeah. But what I want to really talk about is some mornings when we don't see the Spirit in our life. And it's and I love your practical speaking, and, and it's true and it's right, but a big part of our sanctification, <coughs> if it's missing, if it's void confession of sin, all we're doing is putting more information because what God wants from us is depending on Him, and depending on Him is our recognition of our need. And, it, and it's kind of the old hamster wheel, but I, I've seen stalled Christians, and I know I've been there too, where my life lacked confession of sin. 
And I'm going through the motions of what Scripture says, and I'm recognizing who God is, but for whatever purposes, uh, my heart is holding off the Spirit of God. Hopefully it was helpful, but it seemed clear in my own mind. No, it's good. <clears throat> when, the, when the Spirit comes, what will he do? He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Um, so there is definitely that part of, of the ministry of the Spirit to convict of sin. And we need that. Yeah. All right, let's take a break. And then we'll come back and we'll do the last. Okay? All right. Now, here's... We need to turn the corner to the second half of our overall statement about what we want to be about as a, as a church. If we were to describe in that first half the, uh, the texts that we want to focus on specifically to see God rightly, we would say we're focusing on all of the texts, from Genesis to Revelation. Um, in this one, we're saying not that we want to now ignore the rest of Scripture outside of the Gospel, because I believe the Gospel is in seed form, and uh, I believe actually the church in Acts was established through the preaching of the Gospel from which texts? The Old Testament. So we're not saying that there is no Gospel in the Old Testament. I believe there is. Um, However, what we're saying is, is we're recognizing in this second part here that we exist at a certain place in redemptive history and our purpose is not specifically Abraham's anymore. It's not specifically Israel's. um, But we have a unique purpose given to us in the gospel. Are there similarities between what Abraham did and what Israel did and what we're doing? Of course. Why? Because there is one God of Abraham who's my God, our God, who was the God of Moses and Israel, and that's our God. And his one saving, redemptive purpose, yes, is still flowing and being carried out and being fulfilled in marvelous, wonderful ways. However, that does not mean that we should flatten all of the texts out and say, Abraham's purpose is exactly my purpose and Israel's purpose is exactly our purpose and vice versa. We want to recognize that we hold a place in redemptive history and in the flow of progressive revelation and we don't want to flatten it out all the way. There's, Look, this is the, the whole continuity, discontinuity tension of the texts. And there is a way, and I firmly believe this, having done... You know, having when we preach Leviticus and um, working on this as a part of my, my doctorate, that there is a way in which we must exalt Christ in the continuities that exist between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we need to strive uh, for a Christ-centered approach to showing what is continuous. Because there are continuities, does not mean that there are not discontinuities. And people of one certain camp theologically need to hear that. And people in the other theological camp need to hear that because there are discontinuities, that doesn't mean that legitimate continuities don't exist. The point is, is look, let's, there's a way to honor Christ 
in the continuities, and, and, and there is a way to honor Christ in the discontinuities. Do not try to pit one against the other as if one is about Christ more so than the other. It's not true at all. Hold on to both of them. And it's because of the discontinuities that we would see that our purpose is primarily in the gospel, in the New Testament, as it is revealed to the church through the apostles as they carried forward the commandments of Jesus. Um, so, we find that as Jesus in the gospel, in the gospels, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, was, um, we found that he was primarily about three activities. These were all overlapping activities. We're going to separate them a little bit uh, for the purpose of understanding them better, but we want to make sure that in the end we're holding them all together. Three activities that he was primarily about was drawing in people to himself, building them up and sending them out. And we believe that as if you look in Acts, you're going to see the same kind of thing still happening, that there are sinners who are drawn in. They are, as they are saved, they are built up, and they are sent out for the sake of the gospel. And you see this in the writings of the apostles as well. Now, interestingly enough, as we talk about these three things, drawing in, building up, and sending out, these, these are also not so rigidly sequential that you have to do all of the one and you don't move on to the next until the first is done. Okay, And then you don't move on to the third until the second one is completely done because oftentimes what Jesus did was his best way of building up his twelve was by sending them out. And when they were being sent out, what was happening simultaneously with sending out? People were being what? Drawn in. Okay, So let's talk about drawing in. Can we do that? Um, I have two main statements that I want to make um, from the Gospels and from the New Testament. Number one, drawing in is uniquely God's sovereign and saving work. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about drawing in. Let me tell you what we are not talking about. We are not talking about doing stuff in a way that gets more people to come to church. As people are drawn in savingly to God, yes, they will come to church, they will come to ministries, they will come to programs, they will, probably. But we're not content with a drawing in that gets people in chairs in a room. We are not satisfied with that drawing in until they are what? Savingly drawn in to God through Christ Jesus in the gospel. You understand? So we're talking about drawing in in ways that go beyond, hey, you know what, we should send a flyer out to the neighborhood, letting them know that we're here. Now, should we let them know we're here? Yeah. I'm not opposed to that. But, what are we ultimately after? And we need to be very thoughtful about what we're going to do if they show up. Okay? So we're not talking about attending church or attending evangelistic meetings merely. We're not satisfied with that kind of drawing in until that drawing in results into the drawing into salvation. And God only does that. Look at John 6. Very clear statements from Jesus <coughs> about the drawing in work of God. John 6, 44. In his difficult passage, or his, his, the passage on his difficult words, that he spoke, that he was the bread of life. <coughs> he says, no one, verse 44, can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 65 of the same chapter, and this is why I told you 
that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. This is God's work to do. And Jesus is not talking about, look, I'm uh, uh, drawing in, it's just like, look, I, I just want you hanging out with me. I just want you in proximity to me. He's talking about savingly being changed. He's talking about himself. There has to be an internalization of God, of Jesus, in the body that is a spiritual nourishment um, that's transforming. So drawing in is uniquely God's sovereign and saving work. Second main statement is Jesus crucified is God's unique object of attraction. It's not just any, God's not just drawing in uh, in a saving way, any old way, it's through a very specific object of attraction. It's Jesus Christ crucified. John chapter 12, verse 32. Jesus made this clear. A voice came from heaven, verse 28. I have glorified it. I will glorify it again because Jesus had just prayed. We know he's, this is, he's about to head into his last night with the disciples. Let me back up to verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Uh, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. The hour of his cross, his death. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Interesting. He's talking about this hour of the cross. And what is he? what's the other subject inseparable from it? Glory. The crowd that stood there heard it and said that it thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show, because some people would say, well, he could have meant his resurrection lifted up from the earth. Well, John made that very clear. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die, lifting up in crucifixion. That is the primary means. Go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I realize I just jumped right into the second aspect of without making something clear. I'll I'll finish this point and I'll try to go back and and clarify something that I want to make sure is clear. 1 Corinthians 1.18 The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. There's a particular means that which God is using in its powerful way to save people. It's the word of the cross. Verse 22. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. What is that? Well, it's a stomach block to Jews, and it's folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, it's Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God. It's the cross. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. We read part of this. When I came, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not plausible words, were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men or in my persuasiveness or my speech, my rhetoric, but in the power of God, which is bound up in the message of the cross. Jesus crucified is God's unique object of attraction. So we're talking about a drawing in with the gospel, with the cross. That's what we're interested in. And if people come to our church and our attendance goes up and that's exciting to see and wonderful, we're not content with that unless we know that they've been drawn in savingly so. Okay? Now before we go to the practical speak the practically speaking part, 
Um, I want to push pause for a second and back up. If we set our sights on what the scripture sees about God, a God of glory, a God of sacrifice in his son, a God of life-changing stuff in the spirit, that does not leave us in some settled, static place of inaction. Okay? We are compelled by that to action. And that's the gospel purpose given to us. It's our purpose in the gospel. We cannot be a church that is only concerned about really good theology. Listen, good theology motivates you to go run with your mouth wide open and your hand extended to demonstrate the gospel. We must be people of action, gospel action, gospel mission action. And so this is what the second half seeks to uh, try to describe. What does that look like? What does that mean? It means drawing in, building up, and sending out. And I wish I would have said that before I got halfway into the first point. So, anyway. All right. Scott, yes. quick question about the first one. Do we call that drawing in uniquely God's regenerating? I mean, when, when Jesus is saying, okay, before you speak about your salvation, you regenerate, like, is that accurate? Or? Yeah, I mean, it would include regeneration. We're talking about salvation as a whole. We want them drawn into salvation, and so certainly, absolute regeneration is a part of that. And so you'll, and you, then you'll see connection with what we talked about before, right? Transformation of life by the Spirit and the death of the, it. It doesn't take part apart from the cross. It doesn't take place apart from the Spirit either in the drawing in as well. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, it involves all of that. It's a very big drawing in. Okay? Scott? Yes? Uh, I was wondering with the first verse in John 6. Yes. Uh, I was wondering if you could speak on that just a little bit more about why that is not like a universal mentality or a universalist stuff. Uh, Uh, because the, the verse doesn't give any indication that it is. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Meaning, stated positively, only the ones who will come to me are the ones that come that the Father draws. Are you talking about that? I don't know. I guess I was looking at something different. I was at twelve forty, twelve thirty-four. I'm sorry. Twelve. Okay. Or twelve thirty-two. Oh, 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 oh. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, you've asked a question that um, is a very good question, and one that um, uh, I would probably prefer to answer outside of this. I'll give you a short answer. Okay. Um, in any of the all so-called all passages, it's very important to. Um, look around in the context for what is meant by all. And I think in all of them, uh, you will find your answers uh, as to what all means. Does all mean all without any exclusion? Or does all mean something more limited in the sense of not every single individual ever, but specific ones? And I think you can find that that is a, a, a more clear um, representation. Let me give you. A, let me give an example uh, along the side of that, if I can remember it off the top of my head. I can't 
can't remember how the argument went. So never mind. I don't want to. A lot of the cases is all without exception is one of the thoughts, or all without distinction. And the qualifier is usually that if you go back to the context, he's speaking of both Gentile and Jew. Yeah. Or unsaved or saved or various distinctions of categories of people. Especially those working from a Jewish perspective where there was Jewish uniqueness, oftentimes the all does not necessarily, that would have been, the idea that God would do something outside of Israel was shocking. And a way for the writers to express that God was doing something beyond just Israel was to say all kinds of people outside of Israel are being saved. So I'll leave it at that. If you want to talk some more afterwards, we can say more. But it's a very big debate in regards to the atonement and the extent of the atonement. And I don't want to get detracted off of this with that at this point, if that's all right. Sorry. No need to be sorry at all. It's a great question. Okay. It's a great question. Yeah. I have a question, too, about the drawing in. I guess it seems it's kind of uncomfortable for me because if the drawing in is referring just to God's saving work, then it's kind of a strange purpose for our church to strive for because it's not something that we can do. So is the drawing in meaning our sharing the gospel with people regardless of their response to it? Or is it just God's saving work? Practically speaking is where I was going next. Maybe this will answer it. Sorry. Yeah, no, that's a great question. What we're trying to say in that it is uniquely God's sovereign and saving work to do, it does not mean that we do nothing. We're not trying to say that because the scriptures never say that. But what we're trying to say is that if we're going to go think the age in which we live is primarily a man-centered drawing in. We can do all kinds of stuff that gets people to come. And what we're trying to say is what does that matter if God's not drawing in in the way that he uniquely and only can draw in? And so that's not to make us be polarized and say, therefore we will not do anything and we'll just wait for God to do his unique drawing in because the way that he has ordained that that takes place is through the preaching of the gospel. And so practically speaking is this. I would say this. Use what the Holy Spirit loves to use to convert sinners. Ask yourself the question, what does God love to use? What does the Spirit of God love to use to convert sinners? He loves to use the gospel. So I have to think, if I'm going to participate with what God is doing in his drawing in work, there's only one thing that I want to be given to. It's what Paul said. I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And so, yes, we're very much involved because God, in his wisdom, and what he has left us to do is that we get to be the ones to proclaim so that he then does his unique work that only he can do. It won't come apart from us preaching the gospel. It doesn't come from us sitting back waiting for God to do something while we're silent because we really have a passion to see God do only what God can do. No, that's that's not the way we want to view that. So, does that answer the question? Yeah. So your comment about sending out the flyers, your intent is not your no. intent is to say that we shouldn't do things and never get to the gospel. Correct. The the thought is, um, look, your programs and your service, whatever you want to, and, and we could have debate about what is the purpose of a worship service in a church. Is it how how evangelistic is it? We'll save that for another time. 
Um, if you're going to try to draw people to your body physically, get them to where your church is, um, there's nothing wrong with that as long as you're thinking very carefully about what it is that God wants to do with sinners in the gospel. And there's nothing wrong with that. Now, every church will have a comfort zone that's a little different than the other church comfort zone and what they want to do and what they don't want to do. Uh, I don't, you know, let each elder board and church be resolved in their own mind before God. Okay? Um, but if you're not giving thought to what you want to see take place in those people when they come, that's a problem. It's a, it's not thinking complete enough. Yeah, Doug. It's kind of like, you know, it's the difference between the mindset of when we talk about drawing in, that we're drawing into our church. I, I don't think of it that way. I think it is, we want to draw in to the gospel. We were drawing people, we draw, God draws them in, we draw them to, almost, in a, in a sense. Mm-hmm. We're bringing them to it so that God can do his ultimate. Let me, let me give it to you in another way. I just read um, on a blog, might have even been earlier this morning, where did the language unchurched come from? And what, if you just think for a moment, what does that say about what your concern is? You want people to not be unchurched. You want them to be church. Church. <coughs> but what do you mean by that, and what do you not mean by that? There's a lot of clarifying questions that need to be asked and answered. Um, if, but I think that's a reflection of the methodology that primarily evangelicalism has fallen into much today. That we're all primarily just concerned to get them in the church. The, and what, by that we mean the place where we gather. That, that group of people that come together and meet, we want them a part of it, but, but it's not saying enough. What happened? What's wrong with calling people unbelievers? Unsaved. Well, that's offensive. It's biblical. People don't believe. They're not saved. We want to draw them in, not to just a group of people sitting there, but we want them to be drawn into that body of Christ that only God can draw them into. And then it has a local manifestation right here. Uh, as a local body, but Tyler. Could that be some of the churches that are more seeker churches maybe kind of miss that component, that, the gospel component? That yeah, yeah. If, if by that we mean the, the typical seeker-sensitive movement, yes. Um, Is they're doing programs, you know, express to you. I've been somewhere, I felt like I had a ticket yeah. <laughs> that gets punched when I get there, you yeah. know, where it's just about the program, but some of them miss Interestingly enough, in John 4, in the discussion that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman at the well, who's the one seeking there for worshipers? God is. And so the drawing in that we want to do wants to acknowledge that that God is the one who is seeking worshipers. And and that that's not to say look and, and it would be it's it's easy today I'm not a, I am not a proponent of and the elders of this church I'm not a proponent of seeker sensitive methods um, church growth methods anything like that if we would we would have gone after those things a long time ago we're not in the same sense <clears throat> I don't want to throw out everything and say that it's bad to seek for people that's not bad 
we don't want to do it probably in the way that it's being done, but there's nothing wrong with, look, people drive by here. Let's see, Sunday starting at 12 until 8 p.m., eight hours, eight hours every week. The sign out there says Grace Bible Church Sundays, 5 p.m., temperature 84 degrees, time, whatever. All the other days of the week, they drive by, they don't even know we exist as a body of believing people. That's a problem, I think, to a degree. And yet there's something really kind of almost refining about it, too. Okay, There's, there's bittersweet on, on all of this. There's positive, negative on all of this. There's nothing wrong with wanting people to be more aware that we're here. But why? Why? Because we want to be able to preach the gospel. We want them to be in the hearing of the gospel. We want them, because the Spirit of God loves to use the gospel to convert people and draw them to himself and change them and build them up. And with that same gospel, he sends them out. That's why. Are we ready for that? Are we capable of doing that? If we are, then let's figure out the ways that we're comfortable in making them aware that here we are. There's a bunch of guys who go out on a regular basis and are handing out information about our church. We want them to be aware that we're here and whatnot. Okay? So there's a balance of what do we mean by drawing in? We're not talking about something that's so exclusively what God does that we don't do anything. We're not also talking about it's something that we have to be so diligent in as men, as man, to do it that it doesn't give thought to God. But both. But only in the sense that we want to participate with God as he has defined what drawing in means. Okay? Let's move on if we can. Okay? And here, okay, no, I just changed my mind. I have one more thing I want to say about that. Okay. Here's the temptation. And I find myself doing it all the time and I have to reteach myself and remind myself I can be encouraged because and draw comfort from the fact that we are bigger than we were six months ago. Because there are more chairs set up and there's more people in those chairs. I have to teach myself that the only way to be comforted is to know indeed, are they saved? (laughs) Being built up and participating in the body of Christ in the way that they should be according to the way spelled out in Scripture. Does that mean that therefore it's wrong that people are filling the seats? No. But we've got to think rightly about these things. You want to make sure your comfort is, in, is rooted in the right place and not in um, secondary things. That may or may not mean anything. Churches may be full, but that may, that may not mean anything. Okay? Talk about building up. Let's go to Ephesians 4. Oh my goodness, there's so much to say. And you all know that if I have the opportunity, I'd do it. But I won't kill you today. Building up. Let's understand the place of my edification within the church's edification. Ephesians 4. I've talked with Smed. Smed wants to preach this passage sometime. I don't know if I'll, I, when we we're actually going to go to Ephesians um, this summer once we finish Luke and maybe I'll let him have this whole chapter. But he um, 
this is a passage that he just really wants to pour out before us. Verse 11. He, uh, I'm sorry, Ephesians 4, 11. And he gave apostles, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers, or pastors and teachers. He gave people, individuals, persons. Now, what's their role, these persons? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. All of them. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Another statement on being built up. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Oh my goodness, what a great line that is. So that, let's state it negatively, so that we no longer would be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we, all of us, are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, you see the emphasis on all. Now watch this. Watch how he ends. Joined and held together by every joint, every piece, joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the whole, the body, grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now listen. Here's what I want you to think about, and, and there's so much more we can say about edification and being built up. But the primary thing I want you to think about is where does your personal edification and building up fit into the bigger edification and building up? What is it that God is doing? Is he interested and does he have in mind only individual personal edifications? Yours, and then mine, and then yours, and then yours, and that only? No, but we have a very personalized view of being built up. It's about me uniquely being built up to, because I need to be fulfilling what God wants me to be and do. And what Paul is saying here is, is it's very interesting. How did he start in verse 11? He started by naming persons, individuals. And what was their role? To see everybody be built up. It's like this chain reaction, equipping the saints so that the body, the whole thing is built up. And then how does he end it back down? So we can start with persons and it gets really big. And then how does he end it back down? Each joint, each part needs to work the right way. And so what I want to encourage you guys to think about is your personal being built up is inseparable from what God is doing in terms of building up the body, the, the church, our church. And don't view your own personal edification apart from that. And don't view how the church is being built up and is growing in a kind of a hard-to-get-your-arms-around way. Don't view that apart from what it's supposed to make as an impact on you. Okay? Don't drive a wedge between these things. Hold them together. Be built up personally. Want that personally for you so that what God is doing in the big way can take place even more so. By using you as an individual part, as a joint which is a part of this whole body, you need to work properly so that what God is building is strong. And hopefully as the body gets strong and stronger, it makes a big impact on the way the joint, this one right here, this personal one, works. Okay? And so my question, practically speaking for you, is which has been your primary focus in your in edification? 
Rightly so, you need to think about yours. I mean, I'm not trying to say that you shouldn't think about your own personal edification, but do you need to strengthen or complete your view of edification by bringing the church more into it, your connectedness to the church? Do you need to complement your personal edification with how the body's edification uh, takes place and the relationship between the two? And if you want to have some help or some encouragement for you in that, please ask an elder. We'd love to talk with you about how your building up needs to take more a part of the, the body's building. Okay? Let's move on to sending out. Now, let's talk about the connection between these three, drawing in, building up, and sending out before uh, we actually talk about sending out. Here's, here's, what, here's what is so uh, helpful about the three of them taking place, drawing in, building up, sending out. It would be easy, and I think a lot of churches can do this, and I think we've even perhaps done it at points, it's easy to be a church that gets really excited about drawing in in the sense of more people coming, but then not giving thought to what needs to happen once they come. And that's why drawing in, and the whole process that it is, uniquely what only God can do, but what we must participate in and preaching the gospel, we must give thought to what are we going to do with them when they're here? Or once they are saved. Thought needs to be given. We, they need to be built up. But for what? Just so that we know more stuff? Is that what it's all about? No. This is why drawing in and building up needs what? Sending out. There's a gospel mission. We need to be sent out. And, and if you'll notice, it has been very easy to develop lots and lots and lots of Bible studies that don't give any thought to And now as we leave, may this make an absolute incredible impact on this lost and dying world around us. Look, these, this is, these are strategic moments in which we gather together so that when we scatter, we're more effective. Amen. We're more effective. Sending out. It's important to start with God on this. God has always been ascending God. Can I remind us of this? In Exodus 3, that's Moses. Uh, Moses, I'm going to send you to Egypt. I'm sending you to Pharaoh. I'm ascending God. This is what I do. Isaiah. Isaiah sees this incredible lofty vision of God and he's broken and he sees his sinfulness. He's his sin is atoned for. And then it's like God lets him overhear a conversation within the Godhead. Whom shall we send? God's concerned as a sending God of what's happening in Israel. And Isaiah is so stunned by what he sees. The minute he hears that there's a mission, oh, send me! Send me! God's ascending God. Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah, I'm going to send you uh, to these people. Ezekiel, I'm going to send you to these people. This is going to be tough. They're not going to listen to you. And it's actually the way I planned it. But go anyway. Okay. It's tough. Go to John chapter 1. God is ascending God even into the New Testament. How do we know? Who's the first figure who comes on the scene in the Gospels? For the most part. Luke gives us a lot more prior to him. John the Baptist. John 1, verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. 
Verse 33. I myself did not know him, John says, but he who sent me, he who sent me to baptize with, baptize with water said to me, on, uh, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John was sent to baptize. Chapter 3, verse 28 of John. John the Baptist speaking again. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Listen, God is a sending God. This is what he does. And ultimately, the, the ultimate sending came when he sent his son. Jesus Christ was sent by his sending father. I encourage you, if you haven't read through the Gospel of John, do so. And circle the word send, sent, sending, any form of send. Circle it. You will find it existing a minimum of 50 times in the Gospel of John. That's a lot. That's an emphasis wanting to be made by God. Read through the Gospel of John and trace it. And watch what um, Jesus says over and over. Just so that we're balanced in our in Trinitarian, the Holy Spirit was also sent, John 14, sent by the Father, sent by the Son. John 14, 15, and 16, you can look at those. Okay, so God is ascending God. Jesus Christ was sent by the Father. The Holy Spirit was sent. So when we come to the sending God and are saved by the sending God, what do we find about us? We're not sent ones? That's kind of crazy. Disciples of Jesus in the body of Christ are sent ones. Go to John 4, verse 38. Jesus said this to his 12 at the well. They come back. They're stunned that he is talking with a woman, let alone a Samaritan woman, and he says, I sent you, I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Um, the idea is being birthed here of the, God, uh, the disciples being sent. John chapter 17 in his prayer, his high priestly prayer. Turn there with me. 17 verse 18. so important in his prayer to his father as you sent me into the world so I have sent them into the world in other words he's saying disciples you're just like me the father sent me and now I'm functioning in a way like that I'm sending you you're sent ones Um, chapter 20 verse 21 he says the same thing again after his resurrection he comes in among them. He shows them his hands and his side. Verse 20. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Matthew chapter 9. Go back to Matthew 9. Verse 35, what's Jesus doing? He's going throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. That's a great description of what his sent life and ministry looked like. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. That is a comfort for you to be participating in the drawing in and sending out ministry of, of God. Because he's at work. 
And the harvest is plentiful. It requires faith to actually believe that. It is actually this way. If it's not, he lied. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to what? To send out laborers. And then that's wonder it's so easy to stop there and just get excited about that, but you can't stop there. Look at chapter 10. He called to him the 12 disciples, gave them authority, cast them out. Uh, I'm sorry, he didn't cast them out. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Here's their names, verses 2 through 4. And verse 5, these 12, Jesus what? He sent them out. So guys, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send workers. And guess who he was talking about? <laughs> talking about them. They were sent. Okay? Practically speaking, what does this mean? Can I encourage you guys to, um, I want to help you with your self-image this morning. I want to help you with the way that you need to see yourself. That's so bad. <laughs> but, I, but it is true. I want you to understand your identity in Jesus Christ. Do you know what you are? Your slave, that's a good one. Yeah. That's very good. <laughs> and therefore, what he says about what you are is what you are. And he says, you shall be my witnesses. Acts 1.8. Guys, we are witnesses and we are sent ones of Jesus Christ. Can I? Let, let's see how this was true of the early Christians in Acts. Go to Acts 1 as we finish this out. Acts 1.8. The early church understood this. They got it, that they were being sent out by Jesus. Acts 1.8, Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Power. There's a power from heaven, from God himself, in the Holy Spirit that is a must for what is going to take place next. And you shall be my... You shall be. You shall equal. What are you? You are witnesses. That's what you are. I saved you to myself. Penal substitutionary atonement made you this. Witnesses. Witnesses. In Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Go to verse 22. Did they get this? Verse 21 actually. So one of them that accompanied us during all that time that the Lord Jesus went in and out and among us beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a what? A witness. They're picking Matthias to replace Judas. Chapter 2, verse 32. Peter's sermon on Pentecost, verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all what? Witnesses. Chapter 3, verse 15. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Chapter 5, verse 32. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Witnesses. We are witnesses. Chapter 10, verse 39. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. We're witnesses. Verse 41. Not to all the people did he reveal himself and appear 
but to us who have been chosen by God as what? Witnesses. Chapter 13, verse 31. God raised him from the dead, verse 30, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are now his witnesses. Paul talks about in his own conversion. Go to Acts 22, verse 15. <clears throat> Ananias, who was in Damascus, who helped Paul after he had um, seen... Christ in all of his glory on the road to Damascus said Brother Saul receive your sight verse 13 and at that very hour I received my sight and saw him and he said the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth for you will be you will equal a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard chapter 26 he does the same thing again verse 16 describing his experience on the Damascus road but rise up and stand upon your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant slave and a witness to these things you know what he called Stephen in Acts 22 verse 20 as he's explaining how they were killing Stephen he called Stephen your witness it was God's witness okay practically speaking guys you need to remind yourself over and over and over again that um, you are a witness of Jesus Christ. You are a sent one of Jesus Christ. This is your status before God. It is a part of the mission of the gospel today through the church that the body is sent into the world and the members of it are sent into the world. Um, you are sent into your household with the gospel, you are sent into the places that God already has positioned you in your work and in your neighborhood, in your school, wherever you are, you are sent there. And you are sent into this church's ministries and other relationships with the gospel. And you might even be sent more formally by this church in church planning and missions. But you need to be thinking of yourself as a sent one. That's not something that's reserved for Jim Lance. He is a sent one. And so are you. And so am I. And finishing up with this one idea. Drawing in, building up, and sending out, those three things are hollow, empty, and nothing without the gospel. It is the gospel that is the center part of drawing in. It is the gospel that we never graduate from and we continue to preach to one another so that we are built up in Jesus Christ. And we are sent out with the gospel. That is why it is called the gospel purpose. A biblical vision, but we have a purpose in the gospel. <coughs> that is to lift it up, that gospel up, so that people are drawn in by God through the preaching of the gospel. So that they are then built up in the gospel. So that they then are sent out with the gospel. That is what we want Grace Bible Church to be all about. So, I hope that that's helpful to you, that it makes more sense. Now, you have a homework assignment. What I want you to do for next time, if you look at the roll in the dark green sheet that radiates the glory of God. <laughs> <laughs>
from your own observations in the church, how well do you think the vision and purpose have left their mark on the church? Think through the following arenas of life in the church to help you answer the question. I just give you a list. Think about it from the preaching to the communion, the songs we sing, the small groups, the leadership development, elder leadership, gospel mission locally, globally. Think, let that list expand. Everything that you've seen, children's ministry, everything. Let those be like little arenas or windows into the church in which to look to see if you, from your perspective, can summarize what you think, how well the biblical vision and gospel purpose has impacted our church. If you feel like, well, you know, I've only been here for X time and there's a lot of people who have been here a lot longer, I don't care. You need, your your observation is valid. It's real. And I want to hear from you what you think about that, okay? And so I just listed them down there for you, the biblical vision of God and the gospel purpose of Christ, just so you can see those things and have them in front of you as you evaluate um, and write whatever you feel you can write. Okay? All right. That's what I've got for you today. Any parting thoughts, questions? In the Greek, Scott, is, is that word sin? Um, does, within the nuance of it, is there with a specific purpose? Like you're not sent without purpose. There's always purpose integrated. Excuse me. Um, whatever. Totally tied. Yeah. It, the, the noun form is apostle. Ah. And if you look at what Jesus did with them, he drew them, called them to himself and to be with him and to heal and to cast out and to do that. So it's very, very purposeful, um, contextually driven by that. I don't know if it's bound up in the word itself. It might be. I'd have to, I'd have to look. But it's certainly, that's the way Jesus utilizes it. And the verb form is the same. It's apostello. It's the same word. Uh, but verbalized, made into a verb. So, Would yeah. you say, Scott, there's a strong tie with that harvesting imagery? Yeah. See, every time Jesus uses that idea of sand, it's very purposeful, isn't it? It's, and it's primarily driven with um, the saving work that God wants to be doing wherever he's at and, and doing. And that's the way the early church saw it as well. Um, they were very eager to be sent into Jerusalem in the early chapters. God was saving a lot of people. And then the church at Antioch forming a great um, example of the mission of the gospel from the church there and Paul being sent out and whatnot. So, yeah. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. you know off the top of your head, Romans 10 is the um, you say I believe in that so and so on is sent or is yeah, that's a great passage to add to it. I would be, I would guess it's the, the same. But um, is anybody familiar with another word in Greek that's beyond the for sin? No, it'd be really easy just to look back at my office. But my, my guess is. <laughs> Did he say something? I'll discipline him later. Okay. <laughs> um, my guess is it's the same word, but I, I, I could easily walk, as we walk over, I can look and, and tell you very quickly. Yeah. Same idea. How are they to preach unless they are sent? All right. Let's close and let's pray and, and let's pray that God would use our church and us in it to accomplish his great purpose that he wants. Okay.
Holy Father, we do desire that you would be able to freely fulfill um, your gospel purpose in us and among us, Lord. Um, And the way that we believe we can prepare ourselves by your help to do that is by not working against you, but rather understanding more and better what it is that you are wanting to do in the gospel and then participating with you. So Lord, help us to become men who are tuned into what you're doing and um, show us how we can participate when we are gathered together, when we are scattered, and if we are even formally sent to another country or another place to preach the gospel. Lord, show us how we can participate even today as we leave from here. We want to see ourselves as witnesses. We trust that you will refine that vision of an identity within us, Lord, in a way that would please you and help us to be more obedient to that identity. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Thanks, guys, so much for being here today. Two more times together in April and we'll be done.